Good morning, everybody. Um, I've just got to say thank you to Mark. That um, has encouraged me, um, the affirmation on Titus, um, because this, this um, season we are talking about Christian character. And um, Graham very kindly gives us the freedom to choose the scripture that we want to kind of open out. And um, I mean, I thought of Potiphar's wife, but thought I'm not going to go there. <laughs> um, so basically, I, yeah, I, I, there were some really obvious ones, but I thought I'm going to go for something a bit different, something that you don't normally maybe hear, something we don't normally talk on. So I decided to look at Titus. So that's really helped me because it was like, is this the right way to go? And yeah, no, I do feel it is, yeah. Okay, so we're talking about self-control. And um, that was just a very small snapshot, a very small cameo kind of shot of of, of the flavor of Titus. Um, It's only mm, less than three pages long, the whole letter to Titus. Um, I'd encourage you to go home and read it. But basically, Paul wrote to Titus um, because Titus and Paul had gone around and they set up this church in Crete. And the, um, the church was going a little bit off the rails. Self-control was no longer the focus. Can I just say there's a bit of an echo here? I don't know what it is, but it's echoing right at me. Thanks. So Paul had left Titus in in charge of the church at Crete and um, yeah, they weren't kind of staying on the the rails a little bit. And the issue that they'd got was, um, we're told in Ephesians, by grace we are saved through faith. And basically what had happened was they had taken this attitude of, well we're saved, we're saved by faith. So Jesus has died for our sins, he died for them yesterday, he died for the ones that we're gonna do today. And he's also died for the ones that we're going to commit tomorrow. So actually, it was like a little bit of a get out of jail card, get out of jail free. It doesn't really matter what we do, we've been saved. So they were abusing the doctrine, the teaching of grace. And this was evidenced in their lack of self-control. And so Paul writes to Titus to encourage them to, to kind of get back on board, get back on track, to improve their behavior, to improve their works. Now we know that we can't earn salvation, no matter how hard we work, we don't earn it. But the reality is, it should be a byproduct of our faith. It should come out of the fact that we have faith. So as I say, Titus, bless him, had got his hands full in Crete. And so Paul writes this letter, and we only have this very small snapshot, but it begins in chapter one, which is a bit you didn't hear, where he says, they claim that they know God, but by their actions they deny him. In a nutshell, he's saying, in today's equivalent, they're saying they're Christians, but actually, they're not acting like they're Christians. That was the kind of crux of what was going on. And then Paul goes on in chapter two, and he says, you know, He kind of implores, say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Live self-controlled, upright, godly lives. Paul then carries on in chapter three. The whole theme keeps going. 
I want to stress to those who have trusted in God to be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. So I'm taking Titus as a bit of a kind of a theme to follow through, and I'm gonna hang this on four hooks. We're a purchased people, we're a purified people, we should be a practicing people, and a patient people. So looking at Titus through those four, the first one, we're a purchased people. We all know that Jesus died for us. We all know that he's, he's redeemed us. Redeemed means brought out of slavery. He, he's, he's, he's paid the price for us. And out of that, out of that thankfulness for that should come our self-control. And I thought, how can I kind of put that message over? Because what I want to do in this sermon is not look at different areas of self-control that we should have self-control in, because the reality is for everybody here, it will be something different. You will all have a different temptation that is kind of yours, more so. But I wanted to look at the motivations, the root of where the self-controlledness comes out of. So I thought, how can I, how can I afresh get over that we're a purchased people, that Jesus purchased us? And I've decided to just to look at it through the eyes of Hosea. And Hosea was a prophet in the Old Testament. And um, he was one of the last prophets to go to the tribes. They'd split up, there were 12 of them, and 10 were in the north, two were in the south, and he went to the 10 in the north. And Hosea was a very unique prophet because what happened was he had to live his life, he had to live out the prophecy within his life before preaching the word of God. So thankful I don't have to do that. And basically, God says to Hosea in chapter one, he says, go marry Gomer. She's gonna be a bit of a rebel. Go marry Gomer. And Gomer's not the kind of person that Hosea would want to marry. And Hosea does it. He follows God's word and he goes out and he marries her. Chapter two, Gomer's self-control goes right out the window. She's off. She's, she's doing things that Potiphar's wife wanted to do. But then in chapter three of Hosea, God says, although she is loved by another man, he says to Hosea, go and tell her that you love her. Go and love her as the Lord loves the Israelites, although they turn to other gods. So Hosea lives out the prophecy. He goes and he finds her. Her lover has sold her out. She's actually in the slave market for sale, literally for sale. So Hosea has to go and buy her back. You know, imagine the embarrassment. He's not buying back somebody who has accidentally been kidnapped. She's left, she's taken flight, and he's gone and he buys her back. And he buys her back for, well, there was 15 shekels and a, and a homer of barley or something. But he goes and he buys her back to show her how much he loves her. And the reality is, he is living out prophetically the word he is about to preach, which is, is that Jesus does, will do exactly that for us. He will buy us back. He will redeem us. Redeem us is buying us back from slavery. And out of that, you'd like to think that we were that grateful and appreciative that we would live that out in our lives, live out that appreciation, you know, 
in the form of self-control. I mean, to, to the people in Hosea's day, it must have looked like an episode of EastEnders. You know, it, it really must have. But Hosea was trying to show the extreme measures that God would go to to show us that he loves us and to, and to get us back. And we are a purchased people. We have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. We should be appreciative. And part of the response of that appreciation is that our Christian characters kind of morph into a more Christ-like template and a byproduct of that is self-control. So we're a purchased people. I know it's an obvious one, but it, it is so kind of pivotal. We're a purified people. In 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, it says, If we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. And when Paul writes to Titus, he echoes this in chapter 3, verse 5, and he says, He saved us not because of the righteous things we have done. You cannot be saved by how hard and how nice and how well behaved you are but he saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal of the Holy Spirit. Basically, Jesus spilt blood, washed us clean, purified us. Jesus gave himself for us, and the least that we can do is give ourselves back to him. I've written down, no one likes a fake. Um, I bought a tin of tomatoes from a supermarket in town. I won't name it, but it's the other side of the river. <laughs> and I got back and I was cooking my spag bowl and I opened up my tin of tomatoes and I looked at it and I thought, it's not tomatoes. I don't quite know what it is. It's orange, it's runny, there's no lumps in it. That ain't tomatoes. And I was quite incensed. And I can remember saying to Mark, you know, I'm taking it back. It's not what it says on the tin. I'm taking it, I'm in the middle of cooking, you know. It would have cost me more in petrol than the 23p it probably cost me to buy it in the first place. But I was really incensed by it. Uh, not to mention the whole logistics of getting a tin that's been opened that's full back to the supermarket. But the bottom line is the contents of the tin gave away that it wasn't genuine. It wasn't what it said it was. We went to Lanzarote about two or three years ago and um, you know, we had these little Spanish markets. There was a day, a trip out, you could catch the bus and you could go to this local marketplace. So I went to this local marketplace and um, our kids had their little holiday spending money and they'd tortled off. And uh, Howard came back, he went, Mom, Mom, I found some Rolexes. <laughs> <laughs> I said, have you, Zilly? Right, he said, yeah, he said, uh, only 20 quid, absolute bargain. I said, love, trust me, if there's one thing I really, really, really know, they're not Rolexes. No, but Mom, they say they're <coughs> Rolexes. Anyway, so we have this banter amongst this really packed, do you know what I mean, kind of marketplace. At the end of the day, God gave me free will, I gave him free will. If you want to spend your holiday money on a Rolex, you do. So he did, he bought Rolex. Um, well, needless to say, you know, within a week, it didn't work. The lifespan gave away that it was fake, that it wasn't genuine. Ladies, have you ever been around a car boot sale? And they've got the perfumes, unwanted gift. I didn't want this for Christmas. You buy it, you get home, you spray it, the scent gives away, that's not real, you know. The bottom line is, nobody likes something that's not genuine. 
Christians that aren't living self-controlled lives, we're kind of giving away the impression that we're not genuine. We're just, it, we're just undermining ourselves. We're kind of sending the message that we aren't really appreciative of what Jesus did for us. When they nailed him to that cross, you know, there was the physical pain, let's face it, you know, I wouldn't have done it, I'd have chickened out. There was the spiritual pain of being separated. When we don't live lives that honour him, we're kind of, we look fake. We look like we don't really appreciate what he did for us. The bottom line is, God won't force anybody here to live a self-controlled life. It's your choice. But if we don't, not only do we let us down, I think we let him down. So, we're a purified people. Third hook, practicing people. How should we practice it? I'm not gonna, there's millions of areas here. You know, everybody's got something. The bottom line is, we should live Christ-honoring lives, live by self-control, live by example. When I do Spectrum, um, before now we've said to the kids, you know, name the Ten Commandments. And they do the obvious ones, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. And that's, you know, you know they, they know them, but I often think the ones that are less obvious to them, thou shalt not bear false witness, thou shalt not covet, are perhaps the ones that will catch them out. Not really the thou shalt not go and murder, do you know what I mean? And I think a little bit, there's a, kind, there's a, there's a parallel a little bit with self-control. Often, the area of self-control that we should control most are the little things, the little things. And I'm gonna hone in on just one, which is the area of speech. In the book of James, he talks about a bit in a horse's mouth. You know, and he says, you know, it's a little bit of, um, I'm not a horsey person, a little bit of horsey kit. But it steers the whole animal. You know, you've got a ton of beast, it steers, that little bit of metal steers the whole beast. And then he talks about a ship's rudder. And if you think of, you know, in the engineering terms, how small a part that is, but that is the small part that guides I don't know how many tons of metal. And James links that in the book, and he says, you know, the reality is the tongue, small part of the anatomy, can do so much good, it can edify, it can build up, but it can do so much damage. And he likens it to a forest fire and a match. One match can cause a huge forest fire. So I think if there's one area of self-control that maybe has a commonality with everybody, it's the tongue, because I think it's so easy to let a word slip. It's so easy not to build up when, when you could have said something that would have been so helpful. And I just really kind of encourage you, if there's one area that you focus on, that, that perhaps that, that might be it. In Proverbs chapter three, verse three, it says, whoever guards his mouth preserves his life, but whoever ho- opens his lips wide comes to ruin. Perhaps one of the smallest parts of the anatomy 
but perhaps one of the most effective and that requiring the most self-control. Fourth hook, patient people. Paul in his letter at Titus, the, the, the latter bit that Mark read in, in, in chapter three, verses three to seven, he reminds the believers of their old lives before they were born again. And the reality is when we practice self-controlled lives, we quite often notice very clearly people that aren't practicing self-controlled lives. Like that distinction becomes more obvious. Um, it's a little bit like being an ex-smoker and I am an ex-smoker. You know, if anybody lights a cigarette up within like 20 yards, I know. You know, and it's that kind of, and if you're practicing self-control, you notice people that aren't and you can't help it. And I think for Paul, this was probably quite poignant because Paul, pre the road to Damascus experience, he had been the coat rack, he had been the coat hook, holding the coats while people were picking up stones and stoning Stephen. While they were killing a Christian, he was the person that was holding the coats. So he's very aware that there is a before as well as an after. And so Paul touches on it in Titus. He basically says that by remembering our old selves, it helps us understand and sympathize with our unsaved friends. It can be easy to judge, especially with self-control. But the reality is, we were probably there once as well. And we have to kind of bear that in mind. I looked up the uh, definition of self-control. He said it was the ability to regulate one's emotions, thoughts, and behavior in the face of temptation. So much easier to do when, when we do it for Jesus. When, it's, when we focus on Jesus, when we thank Jesus, and we want, to do it to, we want to do it to please him. There's a desire in us to please him because of what he has done for us. Bottom line, there will be people around us who are not exercising self-control. But remember, we were there once. So to conclude, we're a purchased people. We've been bought by the blood of Jesus. We're purified, we've been washed clean with the Holy Spirit. We should be a practicing, we should be reflective of that lifestyle. We should be reflective of thankfulness, of appreciation but I think we should also be a bit patient for people who aren't there yet. We should live lives of godliness, not worldliness. We are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. When Jesus walked around on earth, God's glory dwelt in the person of Jesus. After Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension, the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. God's glory now dwells within us. His Holy Spirit dwells within us. To use the Holy Spirit's old name, old name Holy Ghost, ghost is guest, ghost means guest. Guest within, we invite him. We invite the guest to live within us. So now, God's glory dwells within the believer, dwells within you and me. His glory is seen in our actions. And so his, it is, it, his glory is evidenced 
more when we show self-control and we show a different character. So, what I say today is, in your lives, beautify the Bible. Beautify the Bible. Be appreciative to Jesus and beautify the Bible. Amen.